your worship is uh, just so beautiful and authentic. And after two weeks of being away, I really just can hear it and appreciate uh, what uh, must be such a joy to Jesus as he receives uh, your genuine and authentic worship. And I'm excited to uh, open up the Gospel of John with you today. I'm sure many of you have heard that um, we're just going to be going through this Gospel for some time. We'll probably take a break every so often for Lent and Easter and then maybe for Advent, but we're just going to keep going through the Gospel of John until um, we get through this thing or something else happens, but we're, we're going to be in the Gospel of John for a while. And uh, since this is my first time getting to talk about the Gospel of John, just wanted to draw out a couple things as an introduction to the Gospel. Many of you know this, but, uh, you know, John is a little distinct from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in that it was written 40 years later. So Mark, in particular, has this way in which there's an urgency that he's writing with because really he's trying to get the facts out about Jesus and what has happened immediately after they've experienced those facts and now get to uh, spread the good news of the gospel for all who will receive and hear. And so he's getting the facts to the people and we see this frantic urgency in even the writing because Mark uses immediately, immediately, over and over and over again as a way of expressing what happens in the gospel uh, but by the time we get to John, the easiest analogy here is like aged wine. Okay, so I've been told I don't, I don't know that much about wine. In fact, my friend uh, at, at, on a retreat I was recently on bought a $60 of wine, uh, $60 bottle of wine, and he had it at dinner, and I was like, oh, do not waste that on me because it makes no difference to me, 60, 10, 4, it's all the same, but I'm told that uh, the, the point of aged wine is that, that most of the wine we drink is new wine, meaning that, that the, the main fruit of the wine is accentuated, but as time goes on, the wine is alive still in the bottle, and so what happens is, is that these, these other notes, uh, as, as the main fruit deteriorates, these other new notes start to rise to the surface. And so there's different things that can be appreciated and understood in an aged bottle of wine. And in some ways, John has this breathing room to bring about some of the nuances, some of the poetry, some of the wisdom that is also part of this amazing, beautiful gospel story that we get to look at today. So we might imagine in our minds, I, this morning, before we get into the text, that we're sitting with an old, wise, gray mentor who is the best friend of Jesus. And we're sitting there and we're wondering what it was like and he is, in his mind's eye, going all the way back. And today we ask the question, what was it like, those first disciples? How did this whole thing kick off? And so, with the one who Jesus loved, he tells us the story. And so we open our gospel account, and I'll read it to you. 
This is from John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. The next day, John was there. This is John the Baptist. Again, with his two disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. A couple of the notes that I want to draw out actually come from the first verse here, our verse 35 in the story. You saw it says, the next day. And we know from our reading of the Gospel of John, right at the beginning, that there's an allusion to Genesis. It starts in the same way. In the beginning was, right? And, and here, actually, there's something really interesting about the structure at the beginning of the book of John. John has all of these wonderful structures that are laying just beneath the surface of the story that if we draw them out, we can appreciate it for its deep dimensions. And one of them here is just comes out of on the next day. In fact, I think we have a slide of all of the times that we see this phrasing on the next day, that as John's telling the story, he's saying on the next day, on the next day, on the next day. And we think about Genesis, on the next day, on the next day. So it, it, day one in John 1.19, we, we learn about John the Baptist. On the next day, he's preparing. And then day two in, one, in verse 129, behold the Lamb of God. Still this, this trying to figure out who Jesus is. And John the Baptist says, he's the one. Yes, he's the one. Behold, this is the Lamb of God. This preparation. But then on day three, the story we just read, Andrew becomes the first disciple, and then we see on the next day and on the next day. And in fact, we uh, can track that day five was a Tuesday because uh, all weddings in Israel take place on Tuesday. And we know the first miracle in the Gospel of John that was recorded was turning water into wine. And so really our day three is a Sunday, this new creation day. And it's a beautiful way in which John is trying to make a point that's lurking just below the surface and was introduced at the beginning as a thesis statement to say that there's a new creation happening in Jesus' midst. That the one who created at the beginning is now bringing that generative creative force into the world into the humanness of the world. He's drawing people unto himself, and now they're encountering the creative force, this, this great 
generative force. And it's no wonder that people wanted to be around Jesus. It's no wonder that as they come near him, that they are then willing to continue to follow. Do you know people like that in your life? The kind of people that are attractive like a magnet, that you want to be around because when you leave them, you leave better than when you found them. This is the generative force of a disciple. And so the first note we we note here is just that Genesis is lurking just beneath the surface of Jesus, the Son of God, the main topic of the Gospel of John. And the second note that I want us to look at is what is going on when we see here that John the Baptist is standing with two of his disciples, and then he sees Jesus And he says, look, look, the Lamb of God. Because this isn't just uh, for those first hearers, just John the Baptist pointing out Jesus. No, there's particular language here that's being used to indicate a fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise that, that was waiting to be fulfilled. And now in this moment, John is saying, Here's the introduction to all of the Jewish people who've waiting so expectantly. Here's the note here. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? You see, there's a, a question that Isaac raises to Abraham as they're walking up the mountain. He doesn't know that God is maybe bringing him as a sacrificial lamb. And so he sees the firewood, but he doesn't see the lamb. And so he asks this question. He says, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And then hear how Abraham answers the question. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And so what John the Baptist had in mind is the answer to the question the, the prophecy that Abraham had spoken in this moment to his son Isaac. So we see right at the beginning, Jesus as creator, Jesus as savior. But who will go first? We see these are the big, massive themes of who God is, his character and his mission on earth, but the question still remains who would go first? Now, Andrew in church history is known as the patron saint of fishermen, which is appropriate, you know, for us, our namesake right here by the sea. But I wonder if if I could put my two cents in, I would say that Andrew, based off of his one feature and one gospel, his one line and one action here, that he should probably be the patron saint of going first. Because going first is not easy. Perhaps you've had an experience uh, where you uh, were in a classroom setting or uh, had to make a presentation or had to learn something and you were the model for the class. I had a moment kind of like this. Um, I'm in a doctoral program right now through George Fox University. 
And it's a serious program, but we did a kind of a, like a thing that's going to sound non-serious, which is our teacher assigned us to go hiking. We were up in the Oregon woods, and we went, went hiking up there, and she assigned us to write a haiku poem as we were hiking on, up in the wilderness. And as you can imagine, that was like a nightmare to me. I couldn't think of a weirder, more odd assignment to do. So no matter how far you get along in school, you kind of are always who you are as a student, and so I just didn't come up with one. Um, I thought probably it wouldn't matter, and you know, or just probably a self-exercise type of thing. She sits our, our whole class down, and I'm sitting on one side, and uh, there's a big circle, and then there's the other side, and she announces to everybody, our teacher, that we're going to tell our haiku poems to each other. And I was like, if she starts this way, I'm in big trouble right now. If she goes that way, then I'm going to be okay, because I'm going to come up with a haiku by the time. <laughs> so she, she goes this way, and I, I'm starting to sweat, but at least I didn't have to go first. And the, the, the end of the story, just for fun, is that when we were hiking, we met a guy in the wilderness, and he, he was an Oregon guy, and he was eating a mushroom off of a tree. And that was very strange. And so I had a lot of questions for him, so we had a conversation for about a half hour about eating outdoors and what's going on with eating mushrooms, and uh, it was an odd conversation. And then uh, as, I, I'm, uh, as the line is going and people are reading their haikus, my friend, who was with me on the hike, who knew I didn't have a haiku, <laughs> turns to me and he says, you can have one of mine, I wrote two. And then I read that the first one is all about the mushroom man. <laughs> He's like, here, take this one. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I cannot do that. So I made one up, and then I said it, and everyone went, ooh, yeah, that's so great, like we're supposed to do. But then he read the one about the mushroom man, and it tore the house down because we all knew that this was a silly exercise. But my only point here is thinking about that time when you were invited to go first. Like that very first time that you were confronted with new information and you had a decision to make with that new information. How will I respond in light of this new truth? You see, Andrew had a life. He was already following John the Baptist. But when John the Baptist points and says his mentor, his teacher, points to somebody and says, look, the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of a 2,000-year-old promise, now Andrew is faced with a new challenge. What am I to do with this information that only two disciples in the whole world have? And I love his response. I love how he responds so simply to this call to discipleship. You remember what he says? Jesus turns to him, says, what do you want? Now there's echoes here. What do you want? What is your desire? We can think of Elijah and Elisha in a moment, uh, always tricky, but like, like, Elisha is the mentor of Elijah, 
And Elijah turns to Elisha after he's been followed and asks the question three times, what do you want? What do you want in this mentor-mentee relationship? And finally, Elisha says, I want double your power. And it's granted to him. And in fact, in that book, you see that he does twice as many miracles as Elisha does. But that kind of ambition, I wonder, I wonder for Jesus what strikes him in this moment as there's this simple elegance to the answer to, the, to Andrew's desire. Where are you staying? Now see, that is the heart of a disciple. I don't need... I don't need anything. I need to be with you. Where are you going? I want to be there. And this is what, this is what Jesus says. Come and you will see. Why? Because his heart's posture delights Jesus. He's delighted that all Andrew wants when asked by the Savior, the Creator, is just, I want to be with you. This is at the heart of what a true discipleship response looks like. There's no guarantees, there's no promise of the future, there's no roughing out the, uh, ironing out the rough edges, there's no resume, right, that needs to be done. It's simply, can I be with you, Jesus? And Jesus says, yes. Come and see, you will see. This is so important for the church as we reflect on discipleship. just want to read to you one quote from Dallas Willard about how this reorient and how it reorients what we think about church now and what I think true discipleship looks like as a good definition for us this morning. It says this, the leading assumption, he says this, Dallas Willard says, the leading assumption in the American church is that you can be a Christian but not a disciple. That has placed a tremendous burden on a mass of Christians who are not disciples. We tell them to come to church, participate in our programs, and give money. But we see a church that knows nothing of commitment. We have settled for the marginal, and so we carry this awful burden of trying to motivate people to do what they don't want to do. We could think about church the way we, we can't think about church the way we have been. We need to clarify in our minds what discipleship is. My definition, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. So, I want you to imagine you're sitting in that rocking chair with John. And he's telling you this story about this first disciple but then you can kind of see this gleam in his eye like, like, 
Like maybe what happened to this first disciple is going to happen to you too. And the reason why he's telling you the story is so that you can understand the courage of those who've gone before you. The courage to go first. The courage to respond. And to simply say, as our series is titled, that I want a life with Jesus. That I have heard about this Savior, this Creator, and now it is my opportunity to respond. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for Andrew, our namesake. May his spirit of love and affection for you be contagious. May his courage be contagious. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be in our midst uh, to invite us to deeper ways to change and revise our lives so that we can look more and more like you with each and every passing day. I thank you, Lord, for the great disciples that are here present in this church. May they inspire one another towards greater acts of love and mercy in your name. Lord, we also right now pray for Al Taylor. We just lift him up as he is uh, going through a difficult season in his health. Lord, we pray for healing. We pray you be with Marianne and her family. We pray for all of them, Lord, as the church together just raises up, Lord, we pray your love, your compassion, your healing, your power upon him. Lord, be with him in this critical moment, in this valley. Would you be with him mightily? Your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.